0: Good evening and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is David Bowes and I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute and I'm delighted to welcome all of you here. I know we're going to have more people coming in but not very many of them will be coming into this room. Um, I will say to anyone who's out in the hall in the sound of my voice right now that um, there are a few seats along the aisles and if you want to come in and take them you certainly may but Uh, we will have uh, seats outside as well. Today we're going to talk about two major new books on Ayn Rand and the fact that they testify to the continuing impact of America's most influential novelist of ideas. In the past 66 years, more than 25 million copies of Rand's books have been sold, Sales have surged recently, perhaps in response to the uh, financial turmoil and the uh, takeovers and bailouts and expansions of government. Rand remains a major influence on both the libertarian and conservative communities, and these two new studies illustrate the growing scholarly interest in her work. Stephen Cox wrote in Liberty Magazine recently, Rand remains America's most influential libertarian, with the possible exception of Milton Friedman, and America's most influential novelist of ideas. In that second category, there is no contest because there is no runner-up. Now, I know <laughs> All right. now, I know that some of you wince when I say that Rand was a libertarian. She insisted that she wasn't, and many of her fans maintain that point even now. When I published my book, The Libertarian Reader, which is a collection of classic writings on liberty from the Bible to Milton Friedman and beyond, of course I wanted to include a couple of essays by Ayn Rand, but the high priests of her estate would not allow that. They wouldn't allow Ayn Rand to appear in a book with Libertarian in the title. But anybody who believes in individual rights, free enterprise, and strictly limited government is a libertarian, and Ayn Rand certainly did. Or, as I said once to a Rand fan who didn't want to admit he was a libertarian, quoting another great woman of the 1940s, Betty Davis, but you are, Blanche, you are. (laughs) She had a major impact on the libertarian movement in two ways. First is just the numbers. Has any libertarian book ever sold as many copies as Atlas Shrugged? Maybe the Declaration of Independence, if you considered that a book. More than 50 years after it was published, Atlas is selling more than 200,000 copies a year. Ayn Rand has brought more people to libertarian ideas than anybody else in our time. And second, the passion. The people who read Ayn Rand, the people who read Ayn Rand and got the point didn't just become aware of costs and benefits, incentives and trade-offs, they became passionate advocates of liberty. They believed in reason and individualism and individual rights and justice. And sometimes their passion got the better of them. I think one of the reasons libertarians are sometimes scoffed at in academia is that the typical libertarian that the typical professor knows is a 19-year-old male who has just read Atlas Shrugged and believes that he is the only rational person in the classroom (laughs) and will not let you forget that. But most of them grow out of it and become stalwarts of the libertarian movement, not to mention the Goldwater-Reagan movement. It's fashionable even among libertarians to disdain Rand to prefer the subtlety of Hayek or the positivist rigor of Friedman. And it's even more fashionable among the literati to sneer at Ayn Rand with her massive books and purple prose. The highbrow reviewers would rather read books about which no one would ever say I couldn't put it down. Well, I guess I'm the prototypical Philistine. I don't know much about literature, but I know what I like. I picked up Atlas Shrugged during my senior year in high school and read its 1,168 pages in four days. It was the most fascinating thing I'd ever read. It had plot and characters and narrative force along with powerful ideas. Today, there are no ad campaigns for Atlas Shrug, no literary critics recommending Ayn Rand. She just keeps selling by word of mouth and through the efforts of a few institutes devoted to her ideas. And now, these two books provide further evidence of the growing impact, the growing interest in the life, the ideas, and the impact of Ayn Rand. Both these books are available in every bookstore, and of course we have copies here, and the authors would be happy to sign Uh, them after our formal session ends. I'll introduce both authors and let them speak, and then we'll open the floor to questions before the book signing. In Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the World She Made, Jennifer Burns, a professor of history at the University of Virginia, looks at the development of Ayn Rand's ideas and her alliances and clashes with other intellectual and political figures. In Ayn Rand and the World She Made, Anne Heller, a writer and magazine editor in New York, draws on original research done in Russia, dozens of interviews with Rand's relatives and acquaintances, and other sources to develop the first complete and independent biography. To begin our program today, please welcome the author of *Goddess of the Market*, Ayn Rand, and *Ayn Rand and the American Right*, *Goddess of the Market*, *Ayn Rand and the American Right*, Jennifer Burns.
1: Can everybody hear me? I have a lapel mic. I'm not sure if it's working. No, it's not working. Okay, so I'm going to go back to this mic. Is this working? Okay. So it's great to be here. Um, As I'm sure many of you are aware, there's a direct line that can be drawn from Ayn Rand to Cato. And so there's a certain uh, weightiness and a certain importance to being invited to speak here. And I can't imagine um, a better or a more informed audience. And because this is an unusual crowd, I'm going to do a somewhat unusual talk. Typically, in my book talks, I will make sure to give a lot of background about Ayn Rand and the details of her life. I'll still do that, but I want to spend most of my time laying out three arguments about the influence and impact of Ayn Rand on the American right. So three of the primary arguments I want to lay out are in terms of how Rand influenced the right. First of all, that we should consider her the ultimate gateway drug to life on the right. (laughs) As David said, she had this incredible impact on her readers, drew them in. When they moved on from her, often the residue, the impact, the basic framework of her ideas stayed with them. Secondly, I want to argue that she was a major reason for the emergence of an independent libertarian movement of which Cato is perhaps the fullest flowering. And I want to argue that her popularity among libertarians, particularly her emphasis on capitalism, ensured that this independent libertarian movement, when it emerged, remained moored to the right side of the spectrum instead of becoming a left-leaning ideology as it had the potential to do. Now this brings me to the title of my book, Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand, and the American Right, and I chose this title very deliberately. Throughout the book, I juxtapose Rand to conservatives, but I don't call her a conservative and I don't identify her as a conservative because there are a multiplicity of reasons why she doesn't fit in that category. The most obvious one would be her atheism, but there's a whole host of other reasons, which I'm sure you're all thinking of now, which make her really incompatible with this synthetic modern American conservatism we know today. So I place her instead on this broader category of the American right. And when I use the term American right, I'm not being pejorative. This isn't a code word for fascism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm Simply choosing the term, the right, to draw our attention to this broader ideological field that includes conservatives but is not limited to them, that includes other groups, libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, regular capitalists, classical liberals, all those who are interested in limited government and the promotion of capitalism as a social and economic system. So uh, some readers of my book have objected to the fact that I put her on the right, saying she really transcends all political categories. Now, I definitely get the point of this line of argument. My feeling was, this is my first book. I'm going to work with the political categories we all know and understand and perhaps hate. Maybe in my second book, I'll get around to attacking these categories themselves. (laughs) But I may not need to because I think they are shifting already. And one reason I think this is because of the extraordinary surge of interest in Rand that we've seen in the last year. I think of Rand as a sort of canary in the ideological coal mine, She's a sign that things are changing. An interest in her is a sign that tectonic plates are shifting under the surface. People are going back to the fundamentals and asking what really matters, what really counts, what do they really believe. Now, this happened first and most notably in the 1950s when the conservative verdict on Rand came out and it was mostly negative. And this is why I was first drawn to studying Rand, because I was really interested in conservatism in the 1950s, in this critical decade as it developed, as this fusionist ideology which linked Christian morality to free market capitalism was developed. And Rand played this critical role as uh, uh, this sort of joker in the deck, right? The one that might upset Uh, the, the cart, and so she had to be pushed to the side. But the point is that in periods of critical ideological formation, Rand emerges as a factor, as a person, as an influence that has to be dealt with, that has to be considered. And so I think that something along those lines is happening right now. So I wanna encourage you tonight to think with me about what does it mean that we're all talking about Rand so much right now. And given this crowd, it might not just be an academic exercise. We might not be thinking, we might be deciding. So let me just back up and start with the basics. The big question, who is Ayn Rand? She was born Elisa Rosenbaum in Petrograd, Russia in 1905. And when she was 12 years old, her family lived through the Russian Revolution. I want to read you now the opening scene in my book where I describe this experience. It was a wintry day in 1918 when the Red Guard pounded on the door of Zinovi Rosenbaum's chemistry shop. The guards bore a seal of the state of Russia, which they nailed upon the door, signaling it had been seized in the name of the people. Zinovi could at least be thankful the mad whirl of revolution had taken only his property, not his life. But his eldest daughter Elisa, 12 at the time, burned with indignation. The shop was her father's. He had worked for it studied long hours at university, dispensed valued medicine and advice to his customers. Now, in an instant, it was gone, taken to benefit nameless, faceless peasants, strangers who could offer her father nothing in return. The soldiers had come in boots, carrying guns, making clear that resistance would mean death. Yet they had spoken the language of fairness and equality, their goal to build a better society for all. Watching, listening, absorbing, Elisa knew one thing for certain. Those who invoked such lofty ideals were not to be trusted. Talk about helping others was only a thin cover for force and power. It was a lesson she would never forget. So I'll I'll fast forward from this point on because... It's all in the book. Her decision to leave uh, Russia to come to America, her early years of struggle in Hollywood, the beginning of her success as a screenwriter, her early triumph with a fountainhead, her career-making book, Atlas Shrugged, in 1957. And what I do in the book is I return to these very well-known novels and I show how deeply Rand understood them to be political texts. Drawing on some unpublished material that's held in her archive, I show the extent of Rand's activism in the 1940 presidential campaign of Wendell Willkie, how she began to conceive herself to be uh, a John Steinbeck of her side, how she understood the Fountainhead to be not just a, a, a thrilling story about individualism and collectivism, but how she hoped it could have an impact on the New Deal order itself, how it could rouse to the barricades uh, a class of political activists and capitalists eager to roll back what she saw as the illegitimate and immoral reforms of Franklin Roosevelt. So, so this is where uh, uh, Rand got her start and made her fame. And I turn now to the question of how did she affect the American right? And in the book, I spend a good deal of time detailing her connection to other uh, pivotal figures like Rothbard, Mises, Buckley. She knew everyone. And she pretty much got in a fight with everyone. (laughs) So here I want to focus not so much on these luminaries, but more on the rank and file of the libertarian movement or the American right, what kind of impact did she have on those people whose names we don't remember today? Well, as I say, the metaphor I like to use is of Rand as the gateway drug to life on the right. And I choose this deliberately because there's a sort of feverishness and intensity to reading Rand, as David alluded to, that I think is singular and unique and an important part of her appeal. So some of this comes out in a letter I quote in the book. This is a letter she received from a young fan who told her, quote, "'About a month ago, I noticed how much I was talking "'about your books to my teachers and classmates. "'As a result of my enthusiasm, I have lost two friends. I am beginning to realize how unimportant these people are. (laughs) Now, what I want to stress here is this type of encounter with Rand, um, this sort of deep, uh, what many readers described as a spiritual experience, was often linked immediately to political awareness, political consciousness, and political activism. So here I turn to another excerpt from the book. From its founding days, Rand's ideas haunted young Americans for freedom, one of the first conservative youth organizations. The brainchild of William F. Buckley, the group drew up its founding principles, the Sharon Statement, during a meeting at Buckley's Connecticut estate in 1960. Like Rand, Buckley wanted to form a cadre of young activists who would influence the country's political future. Buckley's new intellectuals, however, would swear allegiance to God and country rather than reason and capitalism. Although Buckley intended the new organization to reflect the fusionist consensus of National Review, not all members of YAF were willing to go along. The organization's first student head, Robert Shushman, a Yale law student, had written Rand a gushing fan letter a year earlier telling her, quote, Atlas Shrugged was a fulfillment of a literary promise I only began to see in the fountainhead, the promise of a logical view of existence based on experience, a view which I had always held but never been able to verbalize. Now, he and a few others fought to make Rand's secular libertarianism a prominent part of YAF. In a dispute over the proposed organization's name, they prevailed against the suggested young conservatives and ensured that the Sharon Statement had a libertarian cast. For Shushman and other secular libertarians, Rand's pro-capitalist philosophy was exciting and her atheism unremarkable. So... This type of conviction that could sort of hit like a thunderbolt might take students uh, first to a group like YAF. It was also uh, more than likely would take them to the 1964 presidential campaign of Barry Goldwater. Now Rand herself was at the start of his presidential campaign an avid Goldwater fan and she actually broke from her traditional stance of neutrality to urge readers of her newsletter, the Objectivist Newsletter, to register in the primary as Republicans to vote for Barry Goldwater. She felt that passionately about him winning the nomination. Now, after he won the nomination and entered the campaign, her enthusiasm slowly began to flag, just as her enthusiasm for Wendell Willkie had flagged at about the same moment. Rand wanted Goldwater to talk about capitalism, to talk about fundamental principles. Uh, She wanted him to make clear the importance of the separation of church and state. She felt that he began to muddy his message and lose his own appeal. And in the end, she blamed him for losing the election. But along the way, before she had her final disillusionment, she plumped uh, Goldwater continually in her objectivist newsletter, and a number of her student followers were about as enthusiastic about Goldwater as they were about Rand. So here I, I read another excerpt that speaks to this. Young Goldwater enthusiasts quickly noticed that he seemed to perfectly embody Rand's iconography of the independent manly hero. Jerome Tusil, an avid libertarian, remembered, quote, more important than his message was the fact that Goldwater managed to look the part as though he had been made for it. One look at him and you knew he belonged in Galt's Gulch, surrounded by striking heroes with blazing eyes and lean dynamic heroines with swirling capes. The campaign's student arm was saturated with Rand fans, as one MIT student remembered. He joined YAF and students for Goldwater only to find that, quote, most of the key people in both groups, which mostly overlapped, were objectivists, and I kept getting into discussions of Rand's ideas without having read the books. Close quote. The connection between Rand and Goldwater's campaign was cemented by Carl Hess, a dedicated NBI student and one of Goldwater's chief speechwriters. Hess sprinkled Randian parlance liberally through his boss's speeches. Quote, there were strong echoes from the novelist of romantic capitalism, Ayn Rand, the Washington star noted of one Goldwater speech. So after Goldwater's failed campaign, Uh, For the presidency, this sort of intensity and enthusiasm that both he and Rand aroused on the student right continued to build. And the 1960s really were Rand's heyday in many ways. She spread her ideas primarily through the Nathaniel Brandon Institute, an educational organization formed by uh, her right-hand man and secret lover, Nathaniel Brandon. The Nathaniel Brandon Institute, in combination with Rand's newsletter and the steady stream of nonfiction she produced and her commentary on current events, really made NBI and objectivism into its own subculture. And Rand was really the first to do a successful end run around the mainstream media. She got terrible reviews for Atlas Shrugged. Nobody would take her seriously, and so she essentially set up her own infrastructure, her own organizations, and went from there. Now, the dissolution of the Nathaniel Brandon Institute in 1968 among uh, recriminations and scandal and deep, dark secrets uh, meant that all this ideological energy that had been concentrated in the objectivist movement in MBI had to find other outlets. And as I argue in the book, one of the outlets it found was the modern libertarian movement, which broke away from Young organization, uh, young Americans for Freedom in the late 60s. So I'm gonna uh, uh, give you a prelude of this break now as I describe how Rand's ideas became uh, sort of repurposed and reclaimed and used in different ways after she was no longer around as the figurehead of an organized uh, institution. Rand's ideas became a powerful current in the fast running tides of the student right referenced by a popular new symbol the black flag of anarchy modified with a gold dollar sign. A broad reference to radical libertarianism, the flag had multiple meanings. The dollar sign, the totem of John Galt and Atlas Shrugged, was a clear allusion to Rand. Its juxtaposition on the flag of anarchy, however, indicated allegiances beyond Rand, usually to anarchism. Whatever its exact meaning, the black flag looked menacing to conventional conservatives as it spread beyond the objectivist subculture into the wider conservative movement. Reporting on a Southern California Young Americans for Freedom conference held in conjunction with Robert Lefebvre's radical libertarian Rampart College, Gary North, a writer for the conservative newsletter Chalcedon Report, was dismayed by what he found. Instead of studious conservatives affirming faith in God and country, the conference was filled with eccentrics waving the black dollar sign flag. Enthusiastic libertarians debated proposals to create offshore tax havens and argued over the finer points of objectivist doctrine. Quote When the talk drifted into a debate over whether or not Reardon was the true hero of Atlas, shrugged, given the world in which we live, I left. Close quote. North reported, he concluded, quote, I think it is safe to say that YAF is drifting. (laughs) Now, drifting, indeed, it was. And it was drifting in the direction of Rand objectivism and a sort of anarchist blend of both of those. And this combustible mixture of anarchism, objectivism, and traditionalist conservatism would erupt in full fury in the uh, 1969 St. Louis Convention of Young Americans for Freedom, which is really a good place to sort of date the emergence of modern libertarianism. And a lot of my research in the later stages of the book is drawn from records of this movement in the Hoover Institution Library in California. And when I went into these archives, I had a feeling that Rand was important. Boy, was I right. She was so important. I faced this pretty serious challenge of figuring out what to put in the book because there was so much material. I had so much to choose from. So here I'm going to um, uh, draw out Rand's influence in this epical uh, moment, this split. And I pick up this story right after uh, one of the key planks that the libertarians brought to the Young Americans for Freedom Conference had been defeated. Now this was a plank about draft resistance. And not not only was the plank of condemning the draft uh, defeated by the larger convention but draft resistance itself was condemned so in the face of this insult the libertarians could no longer resist their innate impulse to challenge authority a small pack of students gathered in a conspiratorial knot one of the group had a facsimile of his draft card apparently the conservative within him lived still for he was unwilling to sacrifice the actual draft card Another dissident seized a microphone and announced to the assembly that any person had a right to defend himself against violence, including state violence. Then, quote, he raised a card, touched it with the flame from a cigarette lighter, and lifted it over his head while it burned freely into a curling black ash. Close quote. The symbol of YAF, a hand holding the torch of liberty, had been deftly satirized and openly mocked. After a few moments of shocked silence, pandemonium erupted on the convention floor. Kill the commies, yelled the patriotic majority. <laughs> Amid shouts, shoving, and fisticuffs, the traitorous facsimile draft card burners were objected from the convention floor. Around 300 of their ideological brethren followed the rebels out of the convention and out of young Americans for freedom. A chasm now separated the libertarians and the traditionalists. By the end of the year, a substantial number of YAF chapters had either left the organization or had their charters rescinded. California alone lost 24 chapters. So so here is the moment where I think we see Rand as an inspirational force, um, really... Inspiring and encouraging the libertarians to break away from conservatism, to say no to this alliance, which had become increasingly uncomfortable in the context of the late 60s, the real breaking point was the draft and the Vietnam War. Most libertarians seeing the draft as an imposition on personal uh, freedom and the war in Vietnam as senseless adventurism. Most conservatives seeing the war as necessary to maintain the U.S. position against uh, communist tyranny across the globe. Now, it's in the aftermath of this convention that Rand's influence on libertarianism becomes most obvious and is most easy to trace. And uh, Here is where I think that Rand's influence is really key. Because she kept libertarianism, through her affection for capitalism, she kept it moored to the right side of the spectrum. And and let me just read a, a final passage here. Immediately after the convention, Murray Rothbard and his new comrade Carl Hess attempted to pull the exodus of libertarians to the left. But it was Rand who emerged as the more decisive influence. Rothbard's call for a pan-ideological movement was soundly rejected by libertarian caucus organizers. In an open letter to Rothbard, distributed in St. Louis, Don Ernstberger scoffed at Rothbard's quote, small group in New York, and told him quote, join the left if you will, Dr. Rothbard, but don't try to hand us that crap about the forces of freedom being there. Your view is pure negation. Rothbard and Hess pulled together a few left-right conferences in the year following St. Louis, but their radical libertarian alliance was short-lived. More durable were the many neo-objectivist groups that emerged in the fall of 1969. In open revolt against YAF, the UCLA chapter began putting out, quote, some real volatile stuff. One California libertarian informed the deposed state director, quote, it has black flags with dollar signs and quotes from Rand yet. At the University of San Diego, another student reported that the local YAF leader, quote, "...has changed her chapter into an open objectivist group and has been holding extensive and intensive study groups in the area and has been sponsoring speakers on campus." So, what is the significance here of Rand's presence among this new libertarian movement? Well, it was really significant because it kept the libertarians from becoming just another wing of the new left. Many libertarians looked, sounded, and maybe even smelled like the new left. They were hippies. They didn't like the draft. But their encounter with Rand, their vision of Galt's Gulch, which once imagined could never be forgotten, ensured that they remained capitalists, ensured that they were not interested in collective solutions to social problems, ensured they were not interested in socialism, ensured they were interested in trade and free markets. And so I think this is really, really significant because Rand's keeping libertarianism on the right rather than on the left is what made possible the libertarian political alliance with the republican party for the past 30 odd years capitalism became the touchstone allowing gop rhetoric about markets low taxation and business friendly policies to win the day no matter what else they did or what else they talked about And this brings us back to the question of Rand's place in the culture today. As I show in the book, the alliance between libertarians and conservatives has always been uneasy. It's been a marriage of convenience, as it were. The rumblings of discontent got louder during the Bush presidency. They've been somewhat quieted by the need to unify against a liberal administration. But the sudden ubiquity of Rand makes me think this is a temporary peace. And I think it tips us off that something fundamental is changing. I'm particularly intrigued by this question that keeps coming up, which is, why are today's conservatives not so concerned about Rand's atheism in the way that a figure like Buckley was? Now, I think there are several answers to this question, but on the whole... I do think it has to do with the shifting balance between conservatives and libertarians. I think what we're seeing now in American politics is the unfolding of a new kind of culture war, predicated not on issues of sexual morality or religious belief, but on economic issues, the kinds of things Rand tackles in Atlas Shrugged, production, distribution, redistribution. Rand fits this mood perfectly. She offers us heroes. She offers us villains. Whether she offers us a way out of the current crisis remains to be seen. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. And now, please welcome the author of Ayn Rand and the World She Made, Ann Heller.
2: Uh, hello, everybody. I'm glad to be here tonight. Can you hear me? Um, I'm going to come at the subject of Rand from a different perspective, um, and more, and probably briefly, because I'd like to hear questions. I always love to hear questions about Rand. My interest in Rand is how her ideas were influenced by her personal history and how um, that personal history uh, reveals itself in her novels. She loved to say that her ideas were, had been developed logically, that they were in some measure self-evident, and that nothing more needed to be known than, than what, uh, what she thought. Excuse me, I'm going to get some. She was careful um, not to reveal much about her background. Um, nobody knew her real name uh, except for her husband and his brother. Um, uh, no, no reader knew that she was Russian. Um, her, she once said that her in in the afterward to Atlas Shrugged. She said, "No, this was in that the a letter to readers of the Fountainhead. Don't ask me about my." friends, my hobbies, my interests, my relatives, where I was born and what I do, uh, Ask me about my ideas. Well, I wanted to ask about her friends, her family, her emotions, her uh, day-to-day, the texture of her life, um, and uh, put some flesh on the bones of those ideas. now she did put flesh on the bones of those ideas she was that 's what we love her for, but to some degree, uh, her characters can be seen as uh, avatars of ideas you know people that um, characters that participate in the plot uh, in order to advance it and to represent um, the, uh, the revelation of her ideas in one way or another. Uh, what I found was very, very interesting, like the rest of us, Ayn Rand. Um, took what she lived through, uh, even the details of her early life, uh, and plunked them right down in the middle of her novels. I'm interested in Ayn Rand from a literary point of view because that's my particular interest. But it was through her novels, of course, that she developed her ideas. Uh, The speech at the end of The Fountainhead and Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged formed the basis on which Nathaniel Brandon, particularly Systematized her ideas into what they called objectivism. Um, one example of this is um, uh, her first hero. Um, you probably know about this character. His name is Cyrus, Cyrus Poulton. And he, um, he appeared in a, in a children's um, adventure story, much like a Kipling story. But Ayn Rand fell in love with him, and um, she remembered him all her life. Um, she never forgot anything that made a deep impression on her. And as it turns out, the, the, um, the uh, a translation of that has been published. And if you look at the illustrations, which she wasn't able to look at after after the age of 12, you will see Frank O'Connor, you will see Howard Rourke, you will see John Galt, right up to the place where they roll up their sleeves, they have a button open here, and a hank of hair hangs over their eye. Um, Similarly, when you think about um, Hank Reardon uh, and his response to um, the effort to take his uh, to get him to sign away the patent to his um, his new uh, the Reardon Medal, you see a reenactment corrected of what happened to her in her, what happened to her father in the Russian Revolution. This is what should have happened. Um, He should have have been able to say no. He couldn't, but in Ayn Rand's world, he does. Um, So it's it's the details of her life that I, I was most interested in, and I discovered many things, and I hope that you'll ask me questions about it, but I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Anne. We're going to open it up to questions now. Uh, Please wait for a microphone to come to you so we can be sure that we get you uh, on tape. Uh, And since I don't immediately see a hand, I'm going to ask the first question. Anne, one of the things that I found interesting in your book was, and I want to say I've read both of these books and I learned things from both of them. They're both very well put together. Um, I knew a lot about Ayn Rand, Um, I still learn things in both of these books. One of the things I learned from your book, Anne, was I got a better sense of Rand's marriage to Frank O'Connor. I always sort of wondered, what is going on there? Why is this guy being dragged back and forth across the country? Why does she want a man who is good-looking but not her intellectual equal? I got a better sense from your book of the connection both of them felt. Could you talk a little about their marriage?
2: Yes, uh, I called the, stra- the romantic uh, life of Ayn Rand and some other aspects of her life in my mind, my life as a man. She married a wife, and she married a good wife um, who was loyal to her, who followed her wherever she went, who gave up his own interests in acting primarily and in gardening in order to promote her career because he believed that she was a genius and that she had to be supported. Um that wasn't, unfortunately, that was not uh, something Ayn Rand could say. Um, so she said that, f- that Frank O'Connor, her husband, was a man much like Howard Rourke. She wrote this many times. He was a hero like Howard Rourke who was on strike against um, a, a corrupt world and that um, the world wasn't good enough for him to participate in it. Um, and um, she said this over and over again. I picture him cringing um, as she talked about this. Uh, it, in other ways, she misrepresented the real character of Frank O'Connor, which was gentle, elegant, gracious, and funny um, to herself and others. Um, and uh, she, but she went on to have a life as a man. She, I mean, Nathaniel Brandon could be looked at as a mistress who a, a successful person took in his middle years, um, and she, she came to America to write with a purpose, with a vocation, with a mission, and she accomplished it, and she put everything else aside in order to be able to do that, and her marriage had to conform to that um, that pattern, I think.
0: All right. Okay. A question way in the back there. Back there, a microphone is coming, and while the microphone is getting there, I'm going to ask Jennifer a question. Jennifer, One of the things I found interesting in your book was your discussion of a Rand essay that's never been published called The Manifesto of Individualism, and particularly the changes it went through from the first draft to the second draft. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. So um, The Manifesto of Individualism was something that Rand wrote immediately after her first period of political activism, uh, which was on the wendell Wilkie campaign in 1940. So when this campaign was over, she had joined it through the Wilkie clubs. And the Wilkie clubs eventually dissolved, but Rand thought, wait a second, we have so much momentum, we have so much happening, let's form our own group. And so she started looking around for recruits. She found one partner and they needed a statement of principles. So she spent an entire weekend, um, basically two days straight, uh, were I think she's 36 hours straight or something, pounding out this 32-page document, the Manifesto of Individualism, which was meant to be an inverse communist manifesto. Here's what we believe. And what really struck me about this document was that it did not include the word altruism, I think, more than twice. And so it was missing a lot of the moral components that she later added to her uh, work. And so what struck me about this was one thing Rand liked to claim was that there was no development. There was no change in her thought. It all sort of came out fully formed. And here she's really... She sounds much more like a classical liberal. She's talking about individual rights. She's quoting Patrick Henry. Um, She's not really pushing against traditional morality. She's much more tentative in her ideas. Now, this was, you know, intended to bring people to her political side. And so um, I think that's kind of a pre C of the ideas that turn up in the Fountainhead. By the time they turn up in the Fountainhead, you're seeing more emphasis on altruism and a beginning of this important theme of reason kind of coming to the surface. Um, So I hope that gets at what you're – I think we have a mic. All right. Question
0: in the back, and then we'll take one right here.
3: So I was one of those 19-year-olds who had read The Fountainhead and some lock and whatnot and thought that I was the only rational person on the earth. But um, one of the um, things that kind of put me off from... Objectivists and so forth was this uh religious fervor and dedication to her ideals which seems kind of contrary to the idea of uh individualism and so forth yet Rand herself seemed to encourage and even demand this from her followers how did she justify this kind of cognitive dissidence as it were
1: so sorry let me just how did she justify this um I think that this, the, well, this is one reason for the title of my book, sort of picking up on this this theme of, in, of of religious intensity around her work. I was I spent a lot of time figuring out why does this happen. I think part of it is that she provides an answer to every question in this system, so it hits people with the force of revelation because now they can answer almost any possible question. Um, She definitely insisted on conformity to her views or agreement with her views from an early period. But you see this changing throughout the 40s, and it really changes in the 50s when she forms an alliance with Nathaniel and Barbara Brandon, when they become her best friends, when she finally gets the unquestioning loyalty and affirmation from, you know, someone who she considers her intellectual equal. And at that point, she's no longer willing to tolerate dissent. How did she justify it um, I unpacked this long exchange between her and the philosopher John Hospers who was one of the last sort of independent intellectuals she had a peer relationship with and Hospers went to an early NBI lecture was horrified by what he called it like being in a church and um, tried to argue with her what's going on here and she basically if you read the letter closely Um, seems to assume that if people read Atlas Shrugged and disagree with it, they just didn't understand it. So in other words, if you would truly understand her work, you would agree with it because there is no rational flaw. And she didn't accept any method of reasoning, any pathway to truth other than, you know, rationally derived sort of mathematical equation so that's what she would say you just don't understand if you understood me you would be agreeing with me and by the time she was at the height of her following she had no longer anybody in her life who could kind of shake her out of that and earlier in her life people who tried to shake her out of that usually didn't last very long
4: Nigel Ashford, Institute for Humane Studies. This is for Jennifer Burns. Your book obviously is about her impact on the American right. Did she have any impact on the American left? And if not, why not?
1: So there's this great uh, quote from uh, Jane Alpert who read The Fountainhead and said she learned from The Fountainhead that it was moral to blow up buildings. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So she absolutely did have that effect on the left, and I think that's <laughs> that's one reason why I think some of her could have been pulled to the left. Um, you know, I th- I don't think there's a book in her influence on the left. I think there's a good article. I think you could find a lot of quotes like that. Another um, uh, Hunter S. Thompson loved her. I mean, she's a real figure in 20th century literary culture. So many people are reading her and loving her, and you could definitely you know read through people's notes and letters and diaries and excavate a lot of that. But It was the the selfishness, the capitalism, all that really stood as a barrier. You had to make up your mind. Were you going to buy this part of her? If you were going to buy this part of her, you weren't going to be on the left anymore. So,
4: Go ahead, Jack. I understand that most of Rand's papers are in the Ayn Rand Institute archives. Can both of the authors uh, say something about their dealings with the Ayn Rand Institute archives?
2: Let me begin, because I was denied access to the Ayn Rand uh, papers, which are separate from the archives, as I understand it. Um, the, and I'm told now, after my book is published, that I could have had access to the Ayn Rand archives if I had asked in a different manner or been there and at, at just the right moment. I'm not sure. It doesn't make sense to me. Hello?
0: Well, there's a second edition. All right. Jennifer? Uh,
2: um, so, I was
1: granted access. The um, I was granted access under the agreement. I signed a researchers' agreement with them that I would be writing what was called a special study. And they told me at the time that somebody else was writing an authorized biography, and that um, for that reason, they were not letting projects that could conflict with this authorized biography proceed I assume that's one of the reasons they provided uh, to Ann Heller so,
2: so it wasn't the only one
1: right and and there are there are many I think the whole thing is kind of in motion and in play and I was honestly very anxious about this and um, I've been blogging about it in a series of postings at my website which is JenniferBurns.org, dot org because so many people have been asking me how did this happen and I don't even really know how it happened. Um, I'm delighted it did. I think if I had produced a manuscript that focused on the Brandon <coughs> affair at the centerpiece, I would have had trouble publishing what I did see. Um, so I think the tenderness is about the personal um, aspects of Rand, and I don't really know what
2: what their policies will be going forward. Um, Let me say one more word about that. Um, Jennifer, I think you were a graduate student when you first asked to uh, look at the papers in the archives. I think that makes a difference. Graduate students are encouraged to come and look at the materials and uh, know more about Ayn Rand. Uh, People who are writing books, as I assume you were not then, are not. I, I think that's true.
0: Okay, there's a question there on the aisle. And then we'll take one here.
5: Yeah, I'm uh, Steve Tellis, <clears throat> Johns Hopkins University and New America Foundation. Um, and I like the, um, the image of Rand as a kind of religious f- uh, figure rather than goddess, a kind of prophet. But the other thing I was thinking of, and I, I think of Rand, sometimes I think of uh, the movie Semi-Tough, where there's a, one of the things at the core is that they're, uh, they're, uh, they're going to this project called Pyramid Power, right? So they've, you know, they're not doing as well in football, so they go to this Pyramid Power thing. With, um, and people keep asking, well, did you get it? And people are like I don't know I don't, I'm not sure I got it or not. Um, and that one of the other metaphors for Rand is not as a religious figure, but as a kind of leader of a of a personal potential kind of cult of the kind. And I use cult in a very neutral sense in that. But you know this is a phenomenon we've seen you know starting really in the 50s and going all the way to the present of kind of you know self help kind of organizations that involve uh, arguments about people's personal potential that almost always have certain kind of qualities that. In common, right? The attribution that there's uh, weak people who are gonna, who are trying to hold you down, and that you need to be able to stand up against those weak people. You can call them second-handers. You can call them whatever you want. And I guess I'd like I'd be interested in both of your sense of how Rand fits into that pantheon of sort of self-help prophets, as well as kind of the quasi-religious prophets.
2: Well, I'll I'll give you one answer. Because so many people read her at such a young and tender age, I think they react very viscerally to her defiant, one of her favorite words is arrogant in her early writings, um, uh, and uh, singular um, heroes. And much of the philosophy is rolled up in those heroes, especially in Howard Rourke. Um, And so I think... I think that the young people who joined her in the 50s and 60s were particularly susceptible to that kind of emotional reaction to her. And um, I think they didn't go away. They were told not to read certain things. They were, more and more, they were um, isolated. And um, so they they made themselves a cult.
1: So, um one of the things that drew me into this project when I was considering it was um, actually, Nathaniel Brandon's post Rand career as this guru of the self esteem movement. Um, you know, and he actually was someone who several of my friends had read to great profit and great benefit. And I thought, wait a second, he's connected to Ayn Rand? How weird is that? Um, that's not something I was able to really fully trace out. I think there's some good work coming out now about sort of 70s self actualization. I think it's very much in. Um, the American individualist tradition, the Emersonian tradition, even the mystical encounter with the self. I think there's a lot you could do there. The other thing I would say is that libertarians kind of tend to these uh, sort of mystical self-actualization and self-exploration ideas there's um, a lot of the the libertarians who, who encountered Rand in the 40s in Hollywood by the 50s were some of the earliest people in this country to start taking LSD right these are these are business conservatives um, and they sort of go off the deep end and get into that so there's something about her work and about the individualist tradition that I think can, can pivot people out here I didn't focus on that I think it's really interesting I think that what Brandon drew out of her work and how he popularized that and became kind of part of pop psychology in the 70s is really, really interesting. I would love for somebody else to write about it um, so I can learn more about it. All right,
0: we'll take a question here and then take the mic way in the back corner.
6: Yeah, Ed Hudgens from the Atlas Society. My question for both authors concerns uh, what you see in terms of the separation of Ayn Rand's personality from the progress of Ayn Rand's objectivist ideas. Because Rand was a novelist, of course, she inspired many of us, including myself, uh, uh, with a vision of the world, an exciting vision of the world. Um, However, you can also look at the ideas, as it were, separate from uh, the novels. What do you see, though I find her nonfiction essays to be very exciting as well and insightful, what do you see in terms of the future of a lot of the ideas that Rand really focused on in her philosophy, such as uh, the awareness of the producer and of his own virtues, things of that sort that certainly you see in politics and perhaps in other uh, areas.
2: Well, I think they'll go forward. I think they can stand alone very well. Um, But I don't think that they will be part of an integrated Ayn Rand philosophy that isn't um, worked upon by others. I think that that the libertarianism we see today Uh, has been influenced by Milton Friedman and by many other uh, thinkers. And it's in that context, I think, that Ayn Rand's ideas will be um, used and will live on.
1: Yeah, I would say it may be a benefit that she has less control over them now and that the inheritors of her work seem to be loosening some of the reins of control. I think that synthesizing her ideas with other perspectives may create an even more powerful brew than what she uh, came up with herself.
0: Okay, back
5: there. Don Boudreau, George Mason University. What can you say about Rand's relationship with the two other great women of her era, Rose Wilder Lane and Isabel Patterson, both personal relationship, if any, and intellectual influence one way or the other?
1: So this is actually sort of a pet project of mine, and I almost stopped writing about Ayn Rand and started writing about these three, much to my dissertation advisor's horror. Um, And I have now been working on the rudiments of an article that kind of brings these three together. Um, I think Patterson's influence on Rand has really been uh, underestimated and underappreciated because I think their initial encounter is lost to history because it was mostly uh, verbal or oral. I see so much in Patterson that's in Rand. She used to say A equals A. She talked about reason being important. Um, she, t- you know, all the ideas about the philosophers—they go right into Rand. In terms of Lane, I find um, they did have a long uh, epistolary relationship and met once and had a long argument about religion and parted ways. I detail this uh, in, in some depth in the book. What's interesting to me about Lane and Rand is they have such different ways of looking at the world. Um, Lane is a committed libertarian, but really has this strong belief in human interdependence and mutuality and connection, and Rand just didn't get that and they just couldn't see eye to eye and after some friendly letters it, this quickly emerged as a flashpoint and then in their meeting it took the form of religion and then they never met again and then lane would just sort of criticize ran whenever she came up and thought some of her ideas are good but you know she said this alien worship of of man is is, is no answer to the kirks that's what that's that was her phrase in fact she said so i think there's a lot Uh, really interesting parallels between them and the fact that three women play this huge role in the intellectual development of libertarianism as an intellectual historian is fascinating to me. Um, So that's something I'm still pursuing.
2: Uh, With Isabel Patterson, I think that they they too had a long epistolary relationship Uh, and um, it came down to the fact that Isabel Patterson wanted to reserve judgment on A is A and A is everything. She wanted to, to uh, leave a little opening for the possibility that there were things we didn't know.
0: Let me ask a double-pronged follow-up to that question. First, it's my impression that Rand is not much studied in women's studies classes, and here is a woman who was the most influential novelist of ideas, a woman whose books sell forever better than anybody else's, a woman who wrote strong heroines, a woman who runs a railroad, a woman who twists powerful businessmen around her finger. Um, Am I right that they don't talk about her in women's studies courses and why not? And then second I'll ask the question, most of the people in the audience are men, but both of you are women and so is the authorized biographer that we're all waiting to hear from uh, as well as the original uh, uh, semi-authorized biographer. So talk about some of those gender issues. (laughs) (laughs)
6: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: first of all, feminists tend to be liberals. And uh, I think there's th- that feminism and socialism share some assumptions. And I think it's very difficult for um, women's studies professors to um, accept, you know, to take what they need and, and, and leave the rest. But the second thing is that Ayn Rand herself did not agree herself that she was a feminist. Um, she wrote a very famous uh, column in the Los Angeles Times about, oh, I think maybe it was Cosmo, about um, how a woman should not be president because women should be man worshippers. And by that she didn't mean um, they should uh, um, subjugate themselves to men, but that they should look up uh, at the, the values that men have in comparison to women. And um, if they weren't looking up, then they were missing something.
1: Yeah, I would just add that um, Rand has been, feminists have addressed her. Susan Brown Miller called her a traitor to her sex. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's, it's they, uh, there's a lot of difficulty moving past um, the rape scene in The Fountainhead, the sort of sadomasochistic depiction of sex and this idea of man worship. Um, that doesn't mean you couldn't talk about Rand as the, the someone who expresses a, a maybe proto-feminism and a very retrograde ideas of gender. Um, it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it will.
0: All right. I'll take a question from a well-known Randian feminist here on the corner.
2: <laughs> Follow-up to that question, two things. One, as one of the founders of the National Women's History Museum, in fact, we talked today about the fact Rand will be going in, um really what it, what it comes down to is that most women 's studies and most women historians are victimhood proponents, which rand is anti victimhood and that 's one of the reasons she could never be studied in women 's studies because you it 'd be a contradiction to the basic core of of their approach, um, but beyond that, you know what you say there about her not being a feminist, I think Joan Kennedy Taylor, if she was still with us, would tell you that is not correct. And, in fact, in Joan's work, Reclaiming the Mainstream, she would make the case that uh, Rand, in fact, is the quintessential individualist feminist.
0: One could say she insisted all her life she wasn't a libertarian, but that doesn't stop us. (laughs) (laughs) Why why can't the feminists have the same independent insight? Um, I don't understand that. Okay, we have lots of hands in the air now. I'll take a question right here. And then one right here.
4: I'm Dane von Breikler with the U.S. Bill of Rights Foundation. Uh, Going back to being allowed into the archives of of Ayn Rand, uh, if Rand were alive at the time that you came in looking for that, do you think she would have agreed with their position of not letting you having access because they might disagree with with theirs? And the other question that tags on to that is, you know, uh, I can back and remember when they would not explore anything beyond her written words. And now that they 've gone into this you know what they 've done is really sort of driven more out of business. I mean I, I mean you have to admit it, it that 's a business out there, and they need to make money just like anybody else so now they're they 're not as pristine i think as they as they would like to claim to be. And I was wondering if I could have your thoughts on that
2: uh, in spite of the fact that I think the Ayn Rand Institute wouldn 't approve of either of our books uh, they 're probably glad to have them published because they can 't help but increase sales of her books and that's a large source of income for the Ayn Rand Institute Um, I don't think she would want me to look at her papers she was very much against giving sustenance to the enemy Uh, not that I'm the enemy but I'm sure she could find something uh, about me that was (laughs) enemy like (laughs) and um, she was very 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 private She wanted to leave her papers, as I understand it, to the Library of Congress. That was her stated wish. It wasn't in her will, and so it didn't happen. But I'm I'm very surprised by that, given that she wanted to give them to the Library of Congress. Perhaps I'm wrong, but um, she I don't think she she would reveal much to us while she was alive.
0: Right here. Uh, John swallowed. I read Anne Rand uh, as a freshman in, in high school, and and uh, the uh, picture in the uh, New York Times book review was uh, 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 you know, the Greenspans and the Rands in the in the Oval Office. Uh, could could you could either of you talk further about her influence on Alan Greenspan, etc.? And and also, she was she was Russian before she was American. How much did her ideas get to, you know, the Russian underground or something under, under USSR and and Are there any literary Russians that uh, admire her?
2: I'll just say one thing about Greenspan. In 1963, he contributed an essay to the Objectivist Newsletter against antitrust regulation. And he argued that uh, businessmen who must have their long-term interest at heart have to be honorable and maintain their reputations in order to succeed. I heard him, I don't know whether anybody else did, retract that statement uh, last October before the Congressional Committee, almost word for word. And it was very interesting to me that he kept that idea for so long.
1: Yeah, I would say, so Greenspan was a member of the collective... um, which was the small group that gathered around in New York in the 1950s, um, he had an unusual place in the collective. He was really struck by her philosophy in a way, like many of the other people I describe in the book. But Rand treated him with an unusual amount of respect. Um, I think she genuinely respected him. He actually provided a lot of the research that went into Atlas Shrugged in terms of how the economy worked. Um, he was older. He was successful. She did have the ability. Um, if you really stood on your own two feet when you interacted with her, to kind of, you know, be okay with that. It was the younger students who really put her in the position of power that she, um, you know, then developed these very unequal relationships with. Um, I think you know this is a question we'll argue about forever. The connection I see is uh, uh, the faith in human rationality and in human integrity and honesty that, um, yes, people in Ayn Rand's novels who are capitalists are all honest and do all have integrity and do care about their reputations. Um, when we step outside of that fictional world, uh, things can be very different.
0: And you interviewed a lot of people for your book. You interviewed all the Jewish cousins in Chicago. You interviewed the housekeeper. Um, Was there anybody you couldn't interview that you wanted to?
2: Uh, There were two people who I wanted to interview and could not. One was Alan Greenspan. I contacted him multiple times with multiple um, Sterling recommendations from friends of his. And each time I was told he was too busy to talk with me. Once the, uh, the... Secretary told me he'd get right back to me. And a day and a half later, I got an email saying that he was very busy right now, and he couldn't talk to me. The other one was Leonard Peikoff.
0: Okay. Up there in the purple shirt. Hi. uh,
5: Will Wilkinson of the Gato Institute. Um, Jennifer Burns, you had mentioned at one point in your talk... uh, that uh, Nathaniel Brandon was uh, responsible for part of the systemization of Rand's, you know, explicit uh, philosophy. And I've always wondered to what extent uh, objectivism as a system, you know, delivered as a, you know, complete coherent whole, how much of that was a product of Nathaniel Brandon uh and how much of it was a product of Ayn Rand. Is there any is,
0: is Brandon the Paul to Ayn Rand's Jesus?
2: <laughs> Good.
1: <laughs> uh my understanding is that Rand had her system pretty much set um even before she met brandon i mean there's a lot of people who met her in california young college students in california she was already trying to bring them over to her system she already knew what it was she was trying to convert them um, what brandon did was add the psychological component And I think that was one of the most destructive elements of organized objectivism. Um, He took objectivism and sort of brought it into psychology and took her characters not as um, idealized projections of qualities we might want to further develop in ourselves, but as examples of psychological health. And John Galt would be cited as an example of psychological health, both in Brandon's counseling sessions and in his lectures. Um, So I see that as the major thing he added Uh, I think it was an unfortunate detour. I think the first person to say that would be Nathaniel Brandon himself, um, who has pretty much retracted a lot of what he taught people um, in his NBI lectures and and describes his later career as almost an effort to do penance for that and to help heal people from some of the attitudes he feels he encouraged them to uh, adapt.
0: Okay, right there. In the back row there... Amy, the back row of this section.
6: Al Milliken, AM Media. Uh, What did uh, Whitaker Chambers consider the wickedness of Atlas Shrugged when he wrote about the book in uh, the National Review?
1: You know, the, the real wickedness was uh, Rand's atheism, which was a huge preoccupation of Chambers. He had been a communist in the 1920s. Um, he had been a spy. He had been close enough to the Communist Party to know people who were purged and murdered. And he ultimately chose to interpret this uh, communism most famously as uh, man without God. And therefore, man needed God. And without God, man became convinced of his own powers and created um, despotic schemes like communism. So when he looked at Rand's atheistic, fully integrated philosophical system, he saw the same thing happening again. Um, He saw hubris. He saw pride. He saw um, the danger of man trusting in rationality and achievement without the tempering influence of a spiritual side or an emphasis on man's innate sinfulness. So that, it, that review has to really be read and understood in the context of the Cold War when we were facing godless communism. And Chambers looked at this and thought, oh no, here's godless capitalism. This isn't going to do at all.
2: I would only, only add to that that many people have read Atlas Shrugged and confused the tone of voice the authoritarian tone of voice, with the ideas themselves. And um, I think Whitaker Chambers fell into that trap to some degree.
3: Right here. Ilya Soman, George Mason University. Uh, this is a questioning primarily for Jennifer Burns. I read your book, and I think I found the overwhelming majority of it extremely persuasive. One area where I wasn't entirely persuaded was your contention that it was Ayn Rand's support for capitalism, which prevented sort of a libertarian-leftist alliance. Uh, and it seemed to me to take and that support for capitalism is what caused it. This wasn't unique to Rand. Almost all libertarians uh, had this as a defining characteristic, including even those like Rothbard, who wanted to do you have the alliance with the left he was actually even more opposed to government regulation of the market than ran was, uh, and it's sort of another factor here also is I'm not sure there really was ever much interest on the left in this kind of coalition. So I wonder if you could elaborate on that further and also if you could actually comment, am I wrong, was there actually some genuine interest uh, in this on the left uh, in the 70s? And in particular, what are people on the left who are actually willing to make some sort of concession to libertarians in order to make the alliance work?
1: So um, I do think that Capitalism commitment to markets remain this fundamental stumbling block. Um, Rothbard was more willing than Rand to say, let's kind of put that aside and attack the state. He was focused on state power. He was an anarchist. And whatever way you could attack the state was welcome to him. Um, I think in a lot of history about libertarianism, there's Rothbard, quote, Mr. Libertarian, I just don't see it. I went in the archives. I looked at who people were reading, who they're referencing, and I feel like this is a PR came PR campaign on Rothbard's behalf to say that you know I was the one who did all this because what I thought was a lot of criticism and not a lot of references to him. So, um, were there other factors that kept libertarianism on the right for sure? I think my focus is on the the movement, so there's there's libertarians, there's thinkers, there's writers, and then there's these movement guys who are writing the pamphlets and arguing in the conventions. Um, It really seemed to me that Rand was who they pointed to um, when they talked about where does libertarianism go next. And they pointed to Rand because she offered them capitalism as a moral system, and then she offered them this rationality as a moral system. So I see her as a huge piece of why it developed. Could libertarianism have found allies on the left if they dropped capitalism? Yes. Um, but that wasn't going to happen. So um, we're leftists looking around for new recruits. Um, at the, in the late 60s, the new left was having enough trouble staying sober enough to figure out what it actually wanted. So, um.
0: Okay, I'm going to take the last question right here.
6: I, uh, Pranav Badwar from nowhere in particular. I was reading the uh, New York Times book review, and one thing struck me here uh, where, the, where the writer says that to preserve her vision, Rand's vision, no genuine capitalist would have done the following, which was to give up a part of the proceeds for each, from each book sale in order to retain the, uh, the entirety of God's speech. And that just seems to fundamentally misunderstand
2: Rand. Would you, would you repeat that question? I'm not sure your mic is working.
6: Oh, okay. Um, the, uh, the author of the New York Times book review on your book talks about how Rand gave up seven cents per book sale in order to retain God's speech.
2: And he goes on to say that no genuine capitalist would have done this. And that seems to completely misunderstand Rand. I agree. <laughs> uh, it's the rare book reviewer who understands Rand in my <laughs> ex- experience. She was making an investment, and it paid off.
0: All right. I'm going to call things to a close here. I want to thank Jennifer Burns, author of Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right, and Ann Heller, author of Ayn Rand and the World She Made for Being Here. And I invite you all upstairs for a glass of wine and a book or two, and the authors will be up there to sign them.